Yes, we are live. We're live on Facebook, we're live on Cern Audio, we're live on our, our own website. So okay, so the thumbs. You agree with the thumb? There she is, okay. I, I, I'm going to start out today to let people know that I am not well and I'm not getting better. They don't know really what's wrong with me. I have had a headache every day for now almost two months. I've had brain scans. I've had I have issues with my intestinal system. I have in, 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 I can't even say it anymore. Endoscopy. And that was good. So it have solved a couple of problems. The pain that I had in my stomach that hospitalized me is pretty much under control now. What's not under control is the headaches. I have headaches every day, and I can't stop them. They're very painful, and they've given me horrible drugs to try to deal with them. And I'm not anxious to do things like that just to survive. So I put a question mark. I'm, I wanted to come back on June the 4th. Uh, but I don't know that I'm going to make it. I do the best I can. I have doctor neurology appointments on Thursday, this coming Thursday, and hopefully that might give me some kind of closure as to what's going on with me. Okay, sorry for that news, but that's just the way it is, and I'm an old man now, and here comes this old man stuff. <sighs> I got down here May the 21st. Oh, I should say to you that I'm not stable. I'm physically stable, and I'm not mentally stable, so I apologize ahead of time for whatever it is I might do. May the 21st, 2023, lecture discussion number 198 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 15. And today is going to be more cultivating, more gleaning in Job 1, 6 through 12, because Job 1, 6 through 12 is unbelievable. It's just absolutely fantastic. And when we last gathered here, the merry, wandering band of Cliffsidians, we just had begun to evaluate this interchange. Some might characterize it as, as a combative or a crossfire, but it definitely was an interaction. It was incredibly tense between the Lord God Almighty, the Creator of all things, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, John 1, 1 through 4, and his anointed, though now fallen cherub, the highest of the angelic beings, Ezekiel 28:14, the one who was the seal of perfection, that's Satan. So I have God and Satan interacting, and there's tremendous tension. And I hope I can I can do that justice by describing it. Uh, remember that Satan was called the one who was the seal of perfection. Understand that word seal; it keeps coming up in the Bible. He's the seal of perfection. Described by God. He was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, Ezekiel 28.12. But now, in his own choosing, and notice I am saying that Satan has chosen to be evil. Not everybody likes that view, but that's obviously the true, the, the true view. He's filled with sin and death. And the Hebrew word that, that I called sin and death is actually translated as violence and cruelty. In other words, he is a violent, cruel being. Uh, it, Ezekiel 28:16. It implies he's a murderer and that he likes murdering. Something he wants to do. John writes at 8:44 that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, and that's an interesting question. Now, is when was the beginning of Satan? So the obvious question: uh, When did Satan begin, and when did his he begin to be a murderer? What's the times the time frame? 
essentially, how long did it take for Satan to become what he is, which is incredible evil? And notice I added Ezekiel 28.17, those of you who are looking up the Bible verses, saying that Satan became profane at his free will choice. In other words, he chose to be, to, to be profane. He clearly was not created evil. And there can be no, no dispute about that, in my opinion, because you have the meaning of the seal of perfection. So he was a perfect, gorgeous, beautiful, uh, brilliant being. That's what he was. And so, again, Ezekiel 28.17, God says to Satan, You, I'm going to put that on the board. You, whoops, can't even figure out which end to put. You, is what he says to Satan. This is God saying this. You corrupted your wisdom. I put your You corrupted your wisdom. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You, God did not make Satan evil ultimately. Who, what, who made, who is God saying made Satan even, evil? Yeah, you, you, your. God did not make him evil. The text is definitive. Obviously, the super determinists now object to that because they persist. They advocate for the position that Satan was, he had no choice, he had no factor, he had no part in his evil. His evil was pre, preordained, predetermined, predestined. And Genesis, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 28:17, those yours, you and you, that, that completely repudiates it, refutes it. Anyway, we left off, and by we, I mean me, me left off, grammar police alert. At Job 1, 6 through 12. And so far, all that I might have accomplished in the, in the previous lectures has been cursory. It's certainly substandard. There's just no way you can do this very quickly. The analysis is just has to be pretty mundane, I guess, for lack of a better term. Certainly not, no great, no great depth at this point. That's the only possible thing that I can do given the one hour time frame. Hopefully what today, I'm going to do today is a more advanced position on my whatever it is, second or third attempt here in Job. Now, allow me the redundancy of re-emphasizing the magnitude of the complexity that is Job 1, 6 through 12. It's, un- it's incredible. Again, this is this confrontation between God and Satan, and it's witnessed by how many angels? How many angels witness this? Revelation 5.11 will tell you. It's an uncountable number for a human being, are an angel. So we have billions of angels. And I have both fallen and I have faithful. And they're on a specific day. And that is this day in Job 1, 6 through 12. Hopefully a few of you listening were still awake when I covered some of these uh, of these positions with respect to the time and uh, of, of this incomprehensible event. What time did it happen? Why did it happen at that time on that day? Most obvious question. Who chose the day and the time? Why did he choose it? How much negotiation occurred before both sides consented to the day and the time? God obviously could force attendance. Would he have forced attendance? No, he would not have. So we have to have willful attendance. We have This assembly came because they all wanted to be there. So why did they want to be there? 
Both sides consented to the day and the time and, of course, the location. So, again, all of that has to be solved at some point. Keep in mind Revelation 12. I have fallen demons and I have faithful angels and they're on the precipice. They're on the brink of war. Now, they stay in that position. The, The tension that is there between these two units has been going on for thousands of years. And so this assembly would be absolute mortal enemies side by side or intermixed. And so we should expect the tension to be acute. Eventually there is great rejoicing in heaven, as you know, Revelation 12. That's when the forces, I'm sorry, gosh, excuse me. That's when the forces of Michael cast down the forces of Satan to the earth. So Michael finally is able to attack or defend or do whatever he needs to do to drive Satan out. Satan is considered an invader into heaven at this point, along with his demons. Now again, some of the demons are imprisoned because of Job. I'm sorry, Jude 6. And in any event, Michael's army expels Satan's army. He pushes the great wrath of Satan onto the earth, Revelation 12, 12. The point being, yea, finally, the point is that the angelic realm is in turmoil. Conflict. Second Kings 6, 16 and 17 gives us a little description of that. But what's the cause of this turmoil? Everybody will say, well, Satan's the cause. Well, how did he cause it? What event is traceable to this assembly and to all of this tension and all of this eventual war? Something happened, something specific happened in the heavens. So when did it happen? Why did it happen? And what was it? Okay, again, 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17. I have this fantastic behold. I wish I could shout it out. Behold, 2 Kings 6, 17, it reveals the angelic war. And the, it says the mountain was full of horses, Second Kings 2.11, and those are horses of fire. And that demands an explanation. What exactly is a horse of fire? We know it's a horse, but it's got fire. What's a fire horse? Where do horses of fire come from? How do they get into heaven? How do they get intermeshed inter- with, an, with an angelic army? Revelation 19.14 describes white horses in heaven. Where did the white horses come from? I've asked that question many, many times. Why did the armies of heaven ride white horses? We need to know. How do we have a physical war? I've discussed that before. How do I drive a spiritual being out physically? And they obviously have physical capabilities. We see that in Genesis 18.19. We see that in Genesis 3 with Satan. We know he has a physical capability. Anyway, trying to restrict here a little bit. Trying, uh, trying to contain Job 1, 6 through 12. It, it's impossible. It really is impossible. But, but the first step of the thousands of steps is to search out all the verses that describe God speaking directly to Satan. So I've got God and Satan, bang, right here. Now what do I do? I go find out every place in the Bible where God and Satan are talking to each other. Even if it's an inference, even if the Scripture just barely says it, I need to have them all. I've got to look at every single one of them. So search out all the verses that describe God speaking directly to Satan or Satan speaking directly to God. And immediately we got four 
of Matthew 1-11, through I have Satan talking to God right there. He doesn't necessarily know it's God, but he knows that this is somebody very powerful and very important. Eventually, he figures out that it is God. He's not that slow. That's my position. I got Luke 4, 1 through 13. I got John 13, 21 through 27. That's where Christ says to Judas, who has Satan inside of him, go and do what you're going to do, essentially. He knows that that's Satan's capability and Satan's intellect inside of Judas, who is the seed of the serpent. I've said that many times, Genesis 3:15. Anyway, where am I here? I've got to find myself. Obviously, uh, Matthew 26, 47 through 50 comes to play because I have Judas with Satan inside of him coming to kiss Christ. That's amazing. I've hardly ever covered that, but that's a farewell kiss, by the way. Oh. Try not to do that again today. But I've got Genesis 3, 14, and 15 where God is talking to Satan, tells him he's going to crawl in the dust and eat death the rest of his days, right? So he's telling him he's condemned. I've got Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19. Again, uh, this God talking to Satan, describing Satan. Um, my favorite, of course, is Zechariah 3, 1 through 2, where the angel of the Lord is going to be the only one that can rebuke Satan. And that takes you back to Jude 9 where Michael says to Satan, I can't even talk to you. You're so far ahead of me, I won't even dare talk to you. I will make God talk to you. Because if I talk to you, something not good might happen to me. So I'm just going to back off. That's That's the level difference between Satan and every other angel. He's extraordinary. And you have to always remember he's extraordinary. So... Uh, and here, of course, we're, what we're doing is we got one little tiny piece of the puzzle, and that's Job 1, 6 through 12, and Job 2, 1 through 10. That's what we're dealing with. And, and it goes, and it's, like I said, it's almost incomprehensibly complicated, as we should expect. Always keep to the forefront that Satan was allowed to attack Job. Everybody knows that Satan was allowed to attack Job. What's the easy question? How many times? Twice. Why twice? You have to know, in my view. There's a reason it's twice. It seemed like one was good enough, but it wasn't one, it was twice. So why do I have two advents of Satan attacking Job? Just want to know. So there's the easy question, why two? Two attempts to cause Job to do something. He had two shots at it. God gave him two tries, allowed it to uh, Acts uh, 14.16. He allowed Satan twice to go after Job. So what was Satan trying to do? What, Satan gave it away. He said what he wanted to do. He wanted to, make, he, he wanted to make Job curse God to his face. So Satan had two attempts to cause Job to curse God to God's face. And, and now you've got to ask, what specifically does Satan think Job... Uh, would I say Job? Okay. Again, I'm not stable. People have been saying that about me for many, many years, but now it's finally come to fruition. What specifically does Satan think? Oh, gosh, that's a trick question, isn't it? What specifically does Satan think Job cursing God to his face will accomplish? 
what's going to happen if Job does it? We always assume, well, we've read the story, we all got to the end of the story where Job is and his entire family, all his servants, all his animals are resurrected. But we think we don't... What if, what if Job decided to... Did Job have the capability to curse God to his face? Could he do it? What if Satan was able to accomplish that? You always look at the negative to try to figure out the positive. Obviously, it didn't happen. What's the resultant? What, would, what was Satan hoping to accomplish? And more on that a little bit later in this lecture. For today, Job 1, 6 through 12 and Job 2, 1 through 10 cannot be separated. In other words, I have done something that's wrong. You should have known that. I do it on purpose. If I do it on purpose, is it really wrong? We have to see. But Job 1, 6 through 12, Job 2, 1 through 10 can't be separated out. I have separated them out in the sense that they are two halves of a whole. They have to, they're a unit. And I have stopped at 12, verse 12. And I really have to go to, I have to keep going because verse, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 tells us what's going to happen in, in Job 1, 6 through 12. They are not to be taken as independent events, which I have done. So don't do that. Don't do what I have done. Instead, they, they provide information to each other. And an example of that, it's not coincidental that Job's wife demands that Job curse God and die. She says, curse God and die. And that's not a coincidence. That's exactly what Satan said would happen. Job 2.9 Lecture 197, I made this mention of Adam's relationship to Job because I have the Adam-Job connectivity. And if I'm right, I have to pause. You just never know. But if I'm right, then Adam's wife will be joined to whose wife? That's right, it'll be joined to Job's wife. So I have Adam's wife and Job's wife doing the same thing that Adam and Job are. So I have to go get those positions and put them together as best I can. If there would be the fundamental, and again, this is my opinion of the the fundamental. If there were to be one fundamental that you had to have in studying the Scripture, aside from that all Scripture, every page testifies of Jesus Christ. So you've got to know that. But if there's a fundamental involved next, if you will, then the second fundamental would be that Eve, the wife, she took and she ate the fruit of certain death. She ate of the tree of certain death, Genesis 2.17. And she did it because she was deceived by the lie of Satan, Genesis 3.13, John 8.44. So let me say that again. The wife of Adam took and ate the fruit of certain death because she was deceived. Adam ate, took the fruit of death because he was not deceived. 1 Timothy 2.14 If you can get that, you're really now on your way. In fact, I get goosebumps every time somebody says, I got it, I got that. If you've got that, then you're going to take off in Scripture. You're going to see things that you never can imagine you can see. Understanding this principle is vital to being error-free in Genesis 3. She took it because she was deceived. He took it because he wasn't. Huge difference. Unbelievable. So you'll be error-free if you know that in Genesis 3 and error-free in Job 1 and Job 2. And off you go. Job 1, Job 2 is a repeating of Genesis 3 and that Satan is allowed to put his lie before a man with respect to Job, a blameless man who's upright, who believes God and shuns all evil. Job 1, 8. That's how he's described. And Satan is allowed to put something in front of Job and Job's wife. 
Did Job fail? Did Satan deceive Job? Did Satan deceive Job's wife? Curse God and die. So it looks pretty obvious, doesn't it? Connect that to Genesis 3. Did Satan deceive the last Adam? The last Adam is Jesus Christ himself, 1 Corinthians 15.45. That is an intentionally wrongly worded question, which you only do if you're a highly trained religious professional. And so omniscient God cannot be deceived. So the answer is no. No, he didn't deceive Christ. It's not possible. So we begin by, again, omniscience and infinity makes it impossible. It's Google's complete incompleteness there. See uh, previous lectures. Anyway, we begin by noticing that Satan attacked Adam and Job and the infinite God himself, Jesus Christ. He attacked all three of them. Those mean, that means those three have to be put together. They have to be interlinked. We have to figure out what are the differences, what are the similarities, and what do we, what do we learn by all of that? So where do we go next? The, the options are, are generous. Something that I've covered with respect to the breathtaking statement of Romans 5.14, which is, as you know, the declarative that Adam is a type of Christ. He's absolutely a type of Christ. He took that fruit because he was not deceived. Okay, so I'm going to have Christ in a similar position somewhere in the Bible, aren't I? So, the declarative that Adam is a type of Christ, is that Romans 5.14, is reinforced by 1 Corinthians 15.45 and 1 Timothy 2.14 and Genesis 3.22. All of them say the same thing. Adam is a type of Christ in one way or another, four or five different ways to say the same thing. The behold of Genesis 3.22 Behold, I'm glad I didn't fall down. From the Elohim, he says, Behold, the Lord God himself said, Behold, Adam has become like one of us. And we've covered that. I've covered it. Obviously, the one of the us, Romans 5.14, is referring to Jesus Christ. This is the behold. It's a great revealed truth that you know that Adam has become like one of the us, Romans 5.14. 1 Timothy 2.14. Now, as most of you also know, Matthew 26.38-39 is directly connected to Genesis 3.16. I'm sorry, 3.6. Specifically, the last sentence of Genesis 3.6, And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So we know that Adam ate this, the fruit of death. So Christ is in some place going to have to eat something that is death. Not have to. He's doing it because Adam is a type of him. And he established that in the beginning of Adam. So at some point, after Satan deceived the woman, and you know me, I do not have the position that Adam was side by side with her. They are separated by a vast distance that she had to travel. So after Satan deceived the woman, she comes to Adam with the fruit of death and says essentially the same thing that Job's wife did, right? Job's wife said, curse God and die. The woman gives the, the fruit, says, eat and die. So once again, i got Job and I've got Adam and I have to pay attention to both of them at the same time in order to figure out either one of them. So again, how much time elapsed between the time that she took the fruit and, and died and then... Uh, could you make the statement, could you say that she committed suicide? 
self-inflicted death, right? Just asking for a friend, if only I had one. How much time between the time that she ate and she gave the trans... I'm sorry. (sighs) Transported back, walked herself back. I don't think there was any buses or trains or automobiles. So she walks back to, to Adam and gives him the fruit. How much time elapsed? I'm going to suggest to you that it was three days and three nights. And it is the sign of Jonah. I'll defend that if I get a chance. This is where Matthew 26:38 through 39 provides tremendous context. The last Adam tells his disciples, this is what Christ says to his disciples in a play, when he is in a specific place. He says, sit here while I go and pray there, over there. Well, that's the obvious question there. I hope you get goosebumps. Immediately your antenna should be on high alert. He tells, Jesus Christ tells his disciples, you sit here while I go and pray over there. And this is warning Will Robinson on steroids. You should be just going, okay. God himself said here and there. Sensory overload should be approaching. You, you've got to think of your brain as an electrical grid and your, your thermal breakers are all snapping like gunshots. They're tripping things all over the place. Where is here? Where is there? What happened here? What happened there? Why is he going to these two specific places? Puts his disciples here and he goes over there. Why? Does the Lord God, the omniscient Lord God Almighty, know where here and there are? He does. Does he know what happened there before? Has something else happened in those two places, here and over there? Matthew 26:36 tells us that Christ is where? And is a general area. He is in the garden. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Mary calls him, calls him the gardener, right? He, the gardener is in his garden, and he says, you stay here while I go over there. And, and of course, Gethsemane is the oil, literally the oil press. Judas Satan will be coming quickly, as you know, with Roman soldiers and temple guards. And this amazing conversation between God himself and the Satan man transpires between Judas Satan and the Satan man, the seed of the serpent, and God Himself, and it has this conversation occurs in the garden. So here we go again. Clearly, I am suggesting that Matthew twenty six forty seven through fifty is to be placed alongside of Job one six through twelve and Genesis three. Got to have them all together. Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the second and final Adam, is in great agony. He is in great agony exceedingly sorrowful even to death, he says about himself. Matthew 26.38 Deeply distressed, Matthew 26.37 In his garden. And he is the last Adam. So what now do I know about the first Adam? Yeah. Surely, don't call me Surely. You're all beginning to consider that the first Adam, the type of Christ, just might have also been exceedingly sorrowful, deeply distressed, and his garden. 
at this place before He ate and died in His garden. And yes, I am interlinking the cup of Gethsemane with the fruit of Genesis 3.6. I'm saying to you, there's something that's the same here. Again, Adam ate because he was not deceived. Christ drank the cup. Why did He do it? He wasn't deceived. Obviously, Satan knew where Christ would be because Satan is inside of Judas. So he knows where Christ would be and he he knows why that's the garden. He knows why Christ is there. He knows what has happened there. This is a brilliant mind. A mind that we can't even begin to comprehend. He would know why Christ would be praying over there while the disciples would be sitting here. Satan would know that. Now, I know that I'll add this in here really quickly. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Galatians 3.13, Romans 8.3 all allude to Christ being made sin for us. A curse for us. Being made in the likeness of sinful flesh. Does the cup fit with this mystery of God, of God becoming sin? How about the cross and the cup? How do they all fit together? Both Adam and Christ added sin to themselves. We can agree to that. Uh, How complicated do you think this is? I hope you think that it is ridiculously complicated. Probably beyond our capability. But what should we do anyway? Try to figure it out. To repeat the obvious, what else happened over there and who else sat here? Somebody sat there and somebody went over there. Who did that before? Is this the first time it ever happened? I don't think so. God has a tendency to repeat repeat very important things. The whole Bible testifies of Christ, right? How far away from here is over there? How far did he go? A couple hundred feet? Half mile? How far was he away? How long did he go over there? How long did did it take him to come back? How did it all work? Again, how far away from here is over there? Feel free to propose that Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden with two trees in the midst of the garden. Genesis 2.9 is here and there referencing those two tree locations. <clears throat> and again, I said, I've said this many times in my so-called career. This is not the first garden of Eden that Adam is in. This is the second Garden of Eden. The first garden was Ezekiel 28.13, which describes the day that Satan was created. Satan was created and was put into a Garden of Eden. Now, it wasn't an organic garden. It was a mineral garden. But you begin to to see that he molds both of those together in Revelation. As you might remember, Job 1.6 brings forth the day when the angels of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So all of the angels come to present themselves before the Lord. Fallen and unfallen. Logically, we, by we I still mean me, me should ask if this is the anniversary of Ezekiel 28.13. This day that they all gathered to see God and Satan Speak about Job. I want to know what day that is. What day is it? 
Is it the anniversary of Ezekiel 28.13? Or how about Ezekiel 28.16? That's the day that Satan became the profane thing. So did it happen on the day that Satan was created? Or did it happen at the anniversary of that day? Or did it happen on the anniversary of Satan becoming the profane thing? Other days may be the day that the angelic realm presents themselves. There could be a lot of other positions. There are a lot of other positions that don't even think about the day, frankly. But Satan being specifically mentioned indicates his associative impact here. Why does God say, Hi, Satan. Where did you come from? The fact that Satan has foremost or preeminence in this passage tells me that whatever it was about this day, it had something to do with Satan in some way. Now, I have the creation, I have the profaning. I have also other things as well. So I think the day refers to Satan in some fashion, and we should decide, we should now call it the what? Yes, that's right, we should call it the Satan days. So what Satan day was it? It's going to be a Satan day. Figure it out. This gathering of angels is on a Satan day. What day of Satan does it actually point to? Okay, and so this becomes Occam's razor, doesn't it? At least begin to select which Satan day is the most logical. The one that, that, and if you get that, you're going to have a valuable asset now as you go through Job 1 and Job 2. Okay? And again, this is especially interesting and valuable because God is the initiation or the initiator of the occasion. In other words, the why the assembly has been called into order, Job 1.7, and the why the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? What's that imply? Satan is not with God. He's not around God at all, even though God is omnipresent. If I'm, if I am, if Satan is somebody that is, how do I put this? To put it in a human form. If I have to ask you where you come from, then I don't know where you are. Now God obviously knows, but the inference is, is there's this chasm between Satan and God. Again, what causes the chasm? I, I'm telling you the Satan day is either the creation or the, or the day he profaned himself. From where have you come? You could also make the case that from where have you come is talking about his creation, couldn't you? How did you come into being, Satan? So God will ask a very complicated question that is multifaceted. Keep that in mind at all times. I think it's not improper to consider that God's question to Satan includes a reference as to why the assemblage or the council or the judicial action in front of all of these angels and all of these demons has been called to order. To reestablish, to repeat, Satan lies. If you don't think he lies, then you're wrong. He lies about everything. Everything he says you have to assume is a lie. You start with a lie and then you stay with a lie because it's always a lie. He quotes, Satan does this. He quotes Ezekiel 28.14, the fiery stones. I'm walking back and forth on the earth. That's where I've come from. That's a lie. Now, Satan knows it's a lie, and God knows it's a lie. Who doesn't know it's a lie? Who believed Satan when he said that? Most Christians, don't raise your hands here, most Christians assume that Satan told the truth. 
Why would you ever assume that Satan tells the truth? He never does. So he lies. And he's lying in front of who? The entire assembly of angels, both fallen and faithful. That's his lie. I come from walking around the earth. No, that's not what you did. Don't quote 28.14 Ezekiel. The question then shifts, why did Satan lie? The angel, Jesus Christ, cannot be deceived. Again, that's Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. So he's lying to the angel of the Lord. He's lying to Jesus Christ just like he did Matthew 4, Luke 4. And Jesus Christ cannot be deceived. And guess who knows that? Satan knows that. Can't fool you. I'm going to lie. I'm going to lie, but I'm not lying to you. Because I can't fool you. It's impossible to lie to you. So I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to lie to somebody else. Who's he lying to? So Satan would know that he can't lie. Christ can't be, be deceived. Therefore, the motive of Satan must be default to Ezekiel 28.16. That's this wonderful verse that says, The abundance of your traffic. What that means is that Satan went from angel to angel to angel to angel with the same lie over and over and over again until he got one-third of them to fall away. Ezekiel 28.18, God says this, You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your traffic. And note my emphasis. I didn't emphasize it well enough. I'll try again. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquities of your traffic. That's what God says to him. The emphasis on you, your, your, your. God assigns the sins of Satan to who? Satan. God did not say by the predestination of your traffic. He did not say by the predestination of your sanctuary. You were defiled by my predestination. He never says that. He puts the blame totally on Satan. So if you think, if you're out there listening to me, if you think God predestined Satan for sin, you're calling him a liar. Because he doesn't say that at all. He says the sin of Satan is from Satan. Now what is, the, what is the element that allows Satan to put sin inside of himself? What element is it? It's got to be free will. If there's no free will, there's no existence. We've had that discussion thousands of times. My point, huzzah, a point, Satan is incessantly campaigning. The old adage that Satan is searching for souls to steal, that has validity. It's not just a country western song Charlie Daniel that's what Satan does the Bible 1 Peter 5 8 be sober Peter says be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour 1 Peter 5 8 sends us back to the angelic realm why the angelic realm is in so much pressure and tumult why is it on the edge of a physical battle? Who fell first? Easy question. Angels or mankind? Angels. Is Satan devouring angels? He devours mankind. Does he devour angels? Does he deceive angels? Again, this is Jude 9. This is why Michael said, can't, can't touch you. MC Hammer, right? Can't touch this. Thanks for laughing. I worked really hard on that. Took me a good 30 seconds. Didn't, I can't see a tear smile.
Okay, good. Three for three. I think it's obvious that what Satan is doing is trying to deceive the angels. And he's successful at it. He gets, I don't know how many billions there are, but he gets billions. He gets a third. Why a third? You ever ask yourself, why a third? Why not a half? Okay. Anyway, we, we may conclude that this is what Satan does. He travels land and sea and he tries to win one proselyte. And when that proselyte is won, Satan makes him a son of hell. That's what he does. Angel or human being. Both end up in the lake of fire, right? Matthew 25:41, Revelation. Revelation 14:9. Those who worship the Satan man and receive the mark of the Satan man, the beast, the Antichrist, those who receive the mark of the beast or the Antichrist, the same person, shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God. What that verse means is, says, that if you take the mark of the beast, you will be doomed. Revelation 27-8 through 8 tells us that Satan will deceive a number that is as the sands of the sea. He's able to deceive as billions of people. After the millennium, after Christ has been on the throne, Satan is a murderer. He is the murderer. Remember Matthew 10-28 and fear not them that can kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. And Satan cannot kill the soul. He can't do it. Who can only who kills the soul? Now, the, Christ puts the soul into a place of destruction. But how does the soul die? By what method? Incontestably, Satan and his seed, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, the Satan man, recognize that there is a finality. They read the Bible. They recognize that Revelation 20, 14, 9, if I can get you to take the mark, what have I done to you? I have, I have doomed you. That's one of the interesting things about the, the leaders of the satanic army. They're hoping their own army dies. They're not trying to win a battle. They can't win the battle. They want everybody that fights for them to die. The second death, as a matter of fact. Again, taking the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, is the choice to reject the salvation hand of Jesus Christ and therefore it puts you into the lake of fire that dooms you to the torment of the lake of fire. Revelation 14, 9-10. The second death, Revelation 20:14. Satan intends to have that happen to as many as he can. That's how he devours. Murder as many as he is able. And, and his definition of murder, as he defines it, Again, I would ask, could I, could I say that his definition of murder is to cause, is related to inducing a suicidal condition? And this would lead to his disciples to, uh, to be eternally condemned. And I've said many times, how am I doing for time? I've got to go, haven't I? I've said many times throughout the years that Satan fundamentally intends to place the loving God, 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 19, into the position of casting the angels that he loves, demons that he loves, in this case, and wicked humanity whom he loves, into eternal hell. Make God weep. That's what he's doing. Luke 19, 41 through 44, John 11, 35. Satan knows the love of God. I submit that he sees God's love and mercy as weakness. 
this of Judas, Matthew 26, 48 through 50, is representative of this. Judas is saying to him, goodbye, I love you. That's what he did. No one will be forced or coerced to take the mark. Same thing as the fallen angels. Fallen angels fell. No one forced them to fall. And they are doomed. Same thing is true in the tribulation with the mark of the beast. No one will be coerced. No children will be given the mark of the beast. No one will be will be forced to take it. Would you do so willingly? You will know what you are doing. You will know that it is a worship, a religious event. You're doing it because you hate God, Romans 1. Haters of God. My goal for today... I'm overweight. Somebody, what was it? Was it Jennifer? Said he's certainly looking thin. I can't, I can't hold my weight anymore. I'm struggling with weight. I eat as much as I can. I don't gain weight. So things aren't going very well. My goal for today, which I may have yet to execute, is to melt all of this that I've given you in these past ten pages. I got to page ten already. Uh, I want you to. To weld it all to Job 1, 6 through 22. 6 through 12, really, but you can go 6 through 22. That's the Christ, Adam, Job triumvirate. Eventually, once the concrete is all poured, I've got it all poured and it's all hard, and we get to calculate Job 2, 1 through 10. Especially Job 2, 10, where Job rebukes the foolish woman. This is what he says to the foolish woman. I want to know if Adam said anything to Eve. I'm sure they talked about it. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Wouldn't do it. Job 2.10 directly reinforces Job 1.22. Job 2.10 also undeviatingly screams out Psalm 10.6 where Satan says in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be in adversity. So you see the contrast. Job says, shall we not expect adversity in a sinful fallen world? Shall we not accept judgment is coming? The Hebrew word for adversity is the same form in Job 2.10 as it is when Satan said it in Psalm 10.6. Adversity is a reference to judgment, the great white throne, the second death when Satan uses it. Job is likewise indicating judgment for sin. And now we have Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.14 who concludes brings conclusion to the whole matter. He says, I'm going to conclude it all. I'll get it done. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So adversity is coming. Guarantee. Job 1.22, In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. What a powerful testimony that is. Never did Job utter that God had enacted a horrible and dreadful decree. He didn't say it. He didn't say you're responsible, God, for evil. He never did it. He didn't say you you predestined evil. Not not in all of this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Can it be any more wrong than calling than saying God is responsible for a horrible and dreadful Decree, which is exactly what the hyper-Calvinists say. 
They are as far away from Job who did not sin with his lips, did not accuse God as they could get. Why don't they know that? Do they not read Job? Probably not. Both Satan and Job demonstrated unceasingly their willful capabilities. There's no predestination. The opposite is being displayed in Job. Satan attempted to prove the horrible and dreadful lie. He attempted to prove that God had predestined evil. Now he doesn't believe it. He's lying. But he's trying to convince as many as he can devour, right? Okay? Salvation. Satan and I have said for, what's it been, 30 years almost now? They're willful. The horrible and dreadful lie of, of Satan is this. There's condemnation of predestination. In other words, salvation through predestination and condemnation through predestination. That's the lie. You are not responsible. You will never be held into adversity. You will never be judged because God is the responsible one. That's the lie of Satan. But Job did not sin with his lips. Job didn't flinch. Job was not deceived. Again, what is Satan's motive here? He's got a motive to put this on display before the angelic host. He's using Job as, as evidentiary. And it fails in some sense. But why is he doing that? Why is he saying, I'm going to put Job in front of this entire angelic realm? What's his point? What's he trying to do? And we'll explore that in the near future, assuming that I can do it. But moving along today with the limit, the rebecca, gosh, just can't speak. My mind is clouded. And the headache is winning. Oh. I have the limit. I have the revocation. I have the forfeiture. And I have the hedge. Four things that are happening in Job 1, 6, 6 through 12, and Job 2, 1 through 10. And for those who did not take in lectures 120, 120 gosh, 196 and 197, the issues of revocation and limits, forfeiture, and the hedge are implied in Job 1, 6 through 12, and Job 2, 1 through 10, as well as in Genesis 3, 4, Revelation 9, 6, and Revelation 14, 9. The hedge argument is the most complex, yeah, thank you. The hedge argument is the most complex of all those four. Figuring out exactly all of the elements of the hedge. Satan says there's a hedge. There is no hedge. It's a lie. What does he mean by hedge? Again, today's not the day to visit all the issues other than to ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. I should interject Revelation 23 at this point. Yeah, a point. Because Revelation 23 is undeniably attached to Job 1, 6 through 10 and Job 2, 1 through 10. Easily the most relevant of the New Testament passengers, in my opinion. So I got to bring 23 into this of Revelation. I think it affects and reflects the Job 1, 6 through 12 confrontation between God and Satan. And a lot of people disagree with me. It's, I mean, it's amazing. Astonishing if they disagree with me. How could they do that? And they do. They prefer Genesis 3, 14, and 15. I don't disagree with that. I'm, I won't quibble. Both are obvious, but I'm going to attempt to make the case for Revelation 23, which is, as you know, where Jesus Christ, the judge of all things, John 5, 22, lays hold of Satan, the dragon, the serpent of Genesis 3, binds Satan with chains and casts him into the abyss. That's what's happening there. Now, that's not much of a conversation. 
I'm sure one occurs. I think Satan goes down screaming. And then he shuts him in up in the in the bottomless pit and he puts a seal on Satan so that Satan cannot deceive mankind for 1,000 years. But after 1,000 years, is this amazing statement in the Bible, Satan must be released. Got to be released. Can't leave him there any longer. Why? Allow me to emphasize, Satan must be released and allowed to devour and deceive the world again with Christ on the throne on earth. Those those pieces all, again, fit together. They all respond to one another. This is a great mystery. Don't take it for granted. It is. Why is it that Satan must be released? The literal, literal Greek is that it is necessary for him to be released. And I am proposing, obviously, that the answer to this resides at Job 1, 6 through 12, and Job 2, 1 through 10. We can figure out why he's got to be released by looking at Job 1 and 2. Note that, again, you've got to keep saying it, Job was not deceived, Adam was never deceived, and it's impossible for the infinite Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, to be deceived. Impossible. With that said, if Job and Adam, two human beings, were not deceived, well, that's really good news. Especially Job, who was born with a sin nature through Adam, Romans 5, 12 through 14. Note in conjunction with Romans 5, 12 through 14 is Romans 1, 20. Mankind is what in Romans 1, 20? Without excuse. Without excuse for their foolish hearts and darkened, deceived minds, Romans 1.21. Let me repeat that. Mankind is without excuse. Allow me to defer it here and ask the absolute deterministic Calvinist. If the unsaved are predestined to be evil and predestined to be unsaved, is that not an excuse? I would say that's the greatest excuse of all. But God says the opposite. You have no excuse. And so you have to, once again, if you put God in the position where He's the one predestinating, is that a word? I hope so. He's predestinating. I hope it's a word. sounds like a word. It's a word now. But He's the one who has predestined evil. He's the one that says, you are evil by my will and my act. That's an excuse. That's the exact excuse to say. So man will be without excuse. You won't be able to blame Satan. Cliff Wilson was wrong. You have to be old to know that. All the old people go, I, I get it. Don't tell the young people. Yeah, that's why he used to say that all the time. That was back when that was funny. Now it's not so funny, huh? Geraldine, the world has gone mad. I hope it gets worse really fast because I'm getting tired. But God, again... It's the greatest of excuses. And God says unequivocally that the evil of mankind, the deceived of Revelation 14, 9-11, the doomed ones, those who take the seal, the mark of the Satan, the mark of Satan, all of those are without excuse. It's not, is it not obvious that those who are without excuse have chosen to be without excuse? So it's a free will decision, isn't it? Okay, where was I? Satan must be released. He must be allowed again. God must allow him, 14.16, to deceive all that choose to be deceived. Acts 14.16, again, God allows Satan to attack Job and and Adam and Eve and, and the nations 
at the conclusion of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Why does he do that? And Christ puts a seal on Satan. The Greek word of John 6.27 is the same as Revelation 23 and invokes Daniel 6.17. It's a signet ring. The king seals the lion's den with his ring. And no one can move that rock except the king. He's the only one. It cannot be opened except by the king. Revelation 23, many texts have sealed and then it in italics. It is not there because it's in italics. But it is not in the text. Shut and sealed is all that's there. So we have to decide, is he shutting and sealing the door or did he put a seal on on Satan? And I agree with the King James Version. That should not surprise anyway, anybody. Shut him up and set a seal on him, it says. A mark. Notice Revelation 24 refers to the souls who were not deceived by the beast who refused the mark and were beheaded for their witness. Anyway, we need to at least resolve the reason Satan must be released, which takes us back to Job 1, Job 2. New Testament mysteries are re- revealed by Old Testament passages. And that means the limit, the revocation, the forfeiture, and the heads, they all require definition. As we've already considered Job 1, 9, Satan accuses God of putting a hedge around Job. You put a hedge around him, he said. Now, he knows it's not true. But who doesn't know? When he says, you put a hedge around Job, Who's listening? And he says that you put a hedge around Job essentially for the purpose of securing Job's loyalty. The infamous, does Job fear God for nothing question that Satan asked. Does Job fear God for for nothing? Satan is utilizing the rhetorical form. And in, in this case, the assumed response is no. In other words, everyone shouted no. Who's everyone? No, Job did not fear God for nothing. Job believes God only because God has sheltered, safeguarded Job from any and all adversity. So Job is loyal. Job believes God because of the compensation. Satan says, therefore, Job believes and fears God not of his own free will. That's what's happening here. That's what that question means. You take free will out of this and you destroy the whole narrative. God is running interference, Satan says. So that you could think of it this way. The thumb of God is manipulating the scale, if you, want to, if you will. Job's belief then is logically invalidated. Not genuine. It's merely the result of a transactive manipulation. Uh, and that means that God has done what? Lied again. Satan constantly accuses God of lying. See Genesis 3.1, Genesis 3.4. Satan is more cunning than anything we could ever imagine. This is somebody that is ridiculously brilliant. And we are no match for him. And no angel is a match for him. Only Christ. Easy question. How many of the gathered assembly of angels, faithful and fallen, believe that Satan was right about about God secretly tampering with the free will belief of Job? How many of them bought it? In other words, there is a supposed invisible barrier restricting Job's allegiance. Job has a special status. Some might say that Job has a predestined status. That's what this is about. Does he have a predestined status or not? The evidence, I, I, I think, is clearly saying he doesn't. Okay, how does God debunk the invisible barricade lie? Obviously, no angel can see the invisible barricade. Because why? It's invisible. 
And Satan says, it exists. It's, there's an invisible barrier. You can't see it. You can't feel it. You can't manipulate it. But it's there. I know it's there. And that's why Job doesn't have any free will. So, and so the question becomes, does anybody else have this designation, this invisible barrier? This exemption from the violence and the chaos of fallen sin? Filled with this groaning world, this, this, the whole world groans, the whole creation groans. Note that Satan dares God to remove the so-called invisible hedge. Remove that which isn't there, he says. There's a lot of humor here between the two of them. And of course, they both know that they both know. Has Satan thought this through? He's more cunning. Always remember, he's more cunning. He's more, he lies. He's a murderer. Always think that. And he prowls around devouring whomever he can. In this case, he's prowling around in front of the angelic realm. Trying to move from one-third to two-thirds. How many angels can he get God to destroy in the lake of fire? Not destroy, uh, in prison. And they're profoundly evil. Obviously, Satan knew that his lie was not falsifiable, right? Logically, it's not falsifiable. I have an invisible barrier in front of me. You can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't, you can't even know it's there. So you cannot falsify my invisible barrier. That's what he's done. And God rejected Satan's challenge. God would not touch Job because if he would, he would go in and touch Job, then what would Satan be able to say? Think about that for a second. Satan would be allowed. He said, I will allow you, Satan. Again, Acts 14.16, a powerful verse here. I will allow you to bring evil into Job's life. But Satan was restricted. Job could not be killed by Satan. Now, isn't that interesting? He can't kill him. That's the behold of Job 1.12. He says, behold, you can't kill him. That's a limit. That's a restriction. We need to know why there's a limit and a restriction. Why is it that Satan cannot kill a human being? Keep to the forefront Revelation 9, 4-5, Revelation 9, 15, where this principle is addressed in the tribulation. Those angels come out of the abyss and they, they can't kill human beings for 150 days. Then they can kill a lot. So we see this, this in another position and we're going to have to put it together. Genesis 6, 3 through 7 is another relevant passage because they have the Nephilim going around killing as many people as they can. So why can't God, why can, <coughs> excuse me, why can't Satan kill Job? How, what would he do if, if God said to him, you can kill Job? What would he do? Kill Job. Immediately. Why would he do it? He gets rid of the witness. The point is there are restrictions in place, a restraining force, a withholding force that prevents the exposure of evil. There's a, there's a, well, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 6, Matthew 5, 13, where we have the salt that slows the corruption, the putrefaction of the body. We're described by God as salt that is stopping the body, which is the world, from becoming putrefied. And when he removes the salt, the body immediately goes into putrefaction, a rotting corpse. That is the world. The light of the world, Matthew 5:14, staves off the darkness. So we have this limiting going on. Remember in Revelation, I'm sorry, in Genesis 1, he did not get rid of the darkness. 
He just separated the darkness from the light. Why didn't he get rid of the darkness? He kept the darkness. He cut it in half, but he kept it. Got to solve that. That goes to Job 1.12. The restrainer is, of course, in the in the in the world today, in the, is the Holy Spirit of God. So there is a limitingness to the free will of the kingdoms. The angelic and the humanity kingdoms have the capacity to hate and blaspheme God, curse Him to His face. Revelation 13:4-7. That's what the Antichrist does. Humanity has the capability of doing it. Job has the capability to do it. Satan knew that Job had the capability of knowing it. So what is Satan saying? Job has free will. He will curse you to your face. He has the free will to do it. If he was predestined otherwise, he couldn't do it. But he has the capability. Once again, I can find what seems to be an obscure verse that testifies of free will. How many can I find? The whole Bible is marinated in them. That's the problem for the predestinational philosophy. I don't want to call it a doctrine. Does Satan believe that God will revoke his gift of salvation? This great gift, this so great gift. Hebrews 2.3 Mankind can ignore so great a salvation, neglect such a great salvation. Can mankind revoke salvation? By what process does the revocation of salvation occur? Anyway, does Satan think God will rescind, void, and null his precious gift? Why would he? Why would God do that? Does Satan think he would? What, what would cause God to do that? Revoke his? Because you know the Armenians believe that you can lose your salvation; that God will take it back from you. The most incredible Indian giving of all time. Will God do it? No. Does Satan know why this? Holy Spirit limits his evil capabilities? Yes. Satan's free will is limited. It's not unlimited. Satan knows it. If he had the power to kill human beings, how many human beings would be there? Zero. If he had the power to kill animals, how many animals would we have? Zero. Kill them all. Do it in a day. Does Satan think or believe that... When I say think, that's just really funny. That's an intentionally misworded question, but I still like to do it. Does Satan believe that God has predestined salvation? Individual salvation. That God has placed hedges eliminating free will of billions of Christians. Does Satan believe that? Why not? We could quickly answer that last question by just collecting everything that Satan ever attempts to do. If Satan believed that everyone was predestined either either to salvation or condemnation, by what purpose then does he prowl to devour? Why would he prowl to devour? If everything's predestined, what's the point of him prowling around devouring people? He wouldn't do it. But the Bible describes him as doing it. So what's the Bible saying? Salvation is not predestined. Some will say that Satan is predestined to pretend that he thinks mankind has free will. How's that for convoluted conspiracy theory? You'll come across it. Logically, Satan would gravitate to the opposite pretense here, or at least this appears to be the case, hence the mark of the beast and all of that. Why would you want people to have the mark of the beast if they're predestined to have the mark of the beast? They're already predestined. They're born predestined. Makes no sense. If mankind could forfeit, if mankind could cast out so great a gift of salvation, 
uh, and realize that the so great a gift of salvation is a person, that is Jesus Christ himself. You, if you could cast off Jesus Christ, what would you be doing? How do you cast him off? He's got you, and you're going to do what? You're going to break his grip. This has been tried in the Bible. We call it wrestling with Christ. How did that work out? If you're going to wrestle with Christ, Genesis 32, 22 through 30, prepare to have your name changed. You get your name changed. Revelation 2:17, you get a new name. And, and anyway, but you have your name changed, and you're going to walk with a limp because you're not going to out wrestle Jesus Christ. Not going to happen. You will not prevail against Yeshua salvation. He is the stone, the rock that cannot be moved. And Satan brings before the host of angels that Job can and will curse God to his face if God would stretch out his hand and take away all that Job has, his children, his animals, his health, his workers. Obviously, Satan made a mistake here. You're dealing with with the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, infinite God. You're going to make a mistake. Satan did not anticipate that God would refuse to do that. Satan expected him to refuse. But he didn't just refuse. He allowed Satan to bring evil and pain to Job. If God had just refused it, what would Satan have said to the angels who would be watching that? Obviously, Satan would accuse God of lying about free will because you won't touch him. But you're going to let me touch him. You won't touch him. So I can't accuse you of not giving us free will. You're going to let me touch him, which proves that I have free will and Job will have free will. The irony is fantastic. If Job could have cursed God to his face, that would be evidence that God could rescind his gift of salvation. And that's a lie. I'll explain that if I get a chance. That Arminian position is a lie. And it's it's a terrible lie. It hurts people. Satan implies this is, this is a possibility. If you curse God, he will take your salvation away from you. It is not. The great gift of salvation cannot be moved. It's the stone. It's the rock. You can't move him. Job is eternally saved. Okay, hopefully I am back. Hopefully everything works out and I can come back on the 4th of June. Right now, based on how I feel... I'd say that's a 0% chance. I've almost fainted at least five times here. At least. I'm going, woo. Take some water. Okay, maybe I'll see you as soon as I can. I, I'm not doing good. Yeah. Not. It's okay. We love you, Pastor. I hurt really bad. Everywhere.